Um, just the only announcement that I'm aware of is Vacation Bible School, which is June 13th to 15th. And uh, what? Sign up sheets for what? Oh, for the for the June 5th, a week from this Sunday, we're having our luncheon. So there's sign up sheets out in the fellowship hall, and to sign up for what uh, what food you're going to bring. Second announcement is the uh, uh, vacation Bible school. We need to be in prayer for that. And I know that we have uh, quite a few kids that are signing up. We have in excess, I think, of 23 or 24. I'm not sure. I might have gotten one signed up today, and um, so we need to be out there uh, encouraging friends, relatives, neighbors, nieces, nephews, stepchildren, whatever, to sign up. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Holy Spirit. And Scripture says that we either walk by the Spirit or we walk according to the sin nature. We walk in the light or we walk in darkness. We walk by the sin nature or we uh, walk according to the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 puts it that way. So all of this indicates that there's only two options for the believer. It's amazing how many people don't want to accept that. I did quite a bit of reading today in relation to the topic of redemption, and I went back and I was reading through some things that I had previously read and underlined some things in terms of sanctification, and I'm just astounded how many people haven't thought this through logically. Scripture is very clear on the matter. We either abide in Christ or we don't. These are um, clear statements, absolutes. The only way to recover once we start walking by the, by the sin nature is to confess sin, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God, and immediately we are not only forgiven of those sins, but we are cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's only due to your magnificent grace, your unmerited kindness to us, your undeserved favor that you have provided so much for us, not because we have ever done one little thing that merits any goodness from you, but that you have done this out of your own uh, intrinsic goodness, your righteousness, your love for your creatures. Father, we thank you that you have provided us so much and our salvation, and pray that we might not take lightly that which we have in Christ. Father, we pray as we study tonight that we might come to a greater understanding of our redemption and what that cost and what it means to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Last time we primarily went through most of the material related to redemption in the Old Testament, and there's a couple of things we need to sort of mop up, clean up before we move into the New Testament, and then we will finish the New Testament this evening. Redemption is the topic of 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, and in case you're jumping into the middle of this series, yes, indeed, this is 1 Peter, but we're taking a time out for a little topical study due to the fact that this is uh, at the core of this section of 1 Peter 1. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In this language, Paul is masterfully uh, contrasting what he is saying with Jewish tradition. That's what he means by the tradition from your fathers, not the Old Testament tradition of biblical orthodoxy, but it's distortion under the authority of the rabbinic fathers. So when you get to these terms like this, by the tradition of your fathers, this is talking about the rabbis. This is talking about what has been handed down in terms of the oral law and their interpretation of the written law. And then he identifies Christ as the Passover lamb, the lamb that is without spot or blemish. The word that's used here is this word, lutrao. We'll get a brief review of the words, the Greek words that are used, but the core meaning of both words has to do with paying a purchase price. Something is paid. So we looked at the doctrine of the barrier, good review for everybody, that there is a barrier of sin that separates man from God. That is not how man was originally created. He was originally created with perfect righteousness. It was untested, but nevertheless, it was perfect righteousness. And God had perfect fellowship with man and the woman in the garden. But when Adam sinned. This barrier was erected between God and man. There's different facets as we look at the different doctrines related to salvation. There's different facets to the sin barrier. There's sin itself. There's the penalty of sin, the character of God, our own spiritual death. The first three are objective in nature. The last three have to do with our personal condition. We're spiritually dead. We lack righteousness and we have a position in Adam. Each of these is resolved by something that happens on the cross. Each facet is dealt with uh, specifically by what Christ did on the cross for us. The sin penalty was resolved by unlimited atonement. The extent of Christ's death is for all. He redeemed all mankind. He died in our place. He's a substitute for all extremely important doctrine. And then the second is resolved through redemption and expiation. Expiation is somewhat synonymous to redemption and has to do with the removal or the canceling of a debt. And that is part of what takes place with redemption. In the last couple of lessons, we've looked at the words that are used in the Old Testament. There were two words, Pada and Goel, each captures a different aspect, slightly different aspect of this payment. Uh, Pada emphasizes the payment of a price, 
with the idea that something is set free. Its ownership changes and shifts, and someone is free from a specific state, such as slavery, death, or destruction. The second word is the one that is used more often in the Old Testament, and that is the word group from the verb ga'al, and this emphasizes the aspect of a kinsman redeemer, and we studied this last time, and in the Mosaic Law, this goel, the kinsman redeemer, has a nuance to it that's important, and that is that it is this kinsman redeemer that provides security and protection to the person who is redeemed. And we covered last time how the goel imagery of the kinsman redeemer is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw in our study of the Old Testament that the Old Testament picture is of redemption is primarily based on the Exodus event, but it is also based in Ruth on this idea of the kinsman redeemer, and we looked at those passages last time. Exodus 6.6 6 talks about the Lord says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And this redemption price, as we saw in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, the lamb without spot or blemish, is also alluded to by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Christ is our Pesach. He is our Passover offering, the lamb who dies uh, in our place. He is sacrificed for us. The kinsman redeemer idea is depicted by Boaz, and this is going to bring us to a point we'll talk a little bit about uh, uh, in our study tonight, and that is this idea of the hypostatic union, that Jesus in his deity existed forever and ever in eternity past. He is eternal. He did, had no beginning. And at the time of the incarnation, he enters into human history willingly, and he adds to his deity. He doesn't limit his deity except in its operation. He does not have a reduced form of deity, but he limits its function, but he adds to his deity full and true humanity so that he is 100% human and 100% divine. He is fully God and fully man, united together in one person, and that unity will never end. It is an eternal unity so that the Creator is connected in the second person of the Trinity to the creature. We looked at one, many of the uses of the uh, word ga'al, the cl translated close relatives in, uh, in Ruth. So... <coughs> You'll have to excuse me. I've got a scratchy throat and a nasty cough. So Yahweh is the, we went through these passages. He is referred to again and again, especially in Isaiah, as the Goel. He is the, his, he's the Redeemer who is the Holy One of Israel. This is said again and again. And that's connected to his payment for sin. Isaiah 44:22. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So this depicts his his protection over Israel in the provision of uh, redemption. Now, a couple of other things to point out in terms of the application of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, to the person of Christ, that Jesus had to be genetically related to the human race. 
like had to substitute for like. And this idea of substitution was one that took a while to be fully understood and appreciated in the early church fathers. There were a number of guesses up through the Middle Ages as to the nature of of, uh, Christ's work on the cross, although they talked about it in general terms, that Christ died for us, they believed Christ died for us, but what does it mean that Christ died for us? In what sense does he die for us? One of the first guesses in church history was one that um, was made by a man named Abelard, who was Roman Catholic, and he said it was a moral atonement, that he was simply showing God's love for people so that as they looked at the cross, they would understand how much God loved us and they would be drawn to the cross. Now, very few... Uh, if any, conservatives would ever hold to that view. And that view was rejected by another man that was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and his name was Anselm. And Anselm wrote a book called Cur Deus Homo, Homo, or Why the God-Man. And he very clearly argues, now he's not the first to say it, but he's the first to really develop it and articulate the reasons why, that Christ had to be both fully God and fully man. He had been preceded in that idea by Athanasius. If you remember anything about church history, there was a huge battle in the early part of the church around 300 to 375 over the relationship between um, between uh, Christ the Son and the Father. Was he created at some time in eternity past? Is Jesus eternally God? And Athanasius was the defender of orthodoxy. The man who was promoting heresy was a man known as Arius, A-R-I-U-S. And Arius was a composer of little poems and ditties and contemporary Christian music that would be very memorable, and they sang it throughout the Roman Empire. There was a time when Christ was not. And so people were being influenced, and it was causing a huge, huge rift and division uh, within the Roman Empire. And so Constantine, who was the Roman emperor at the time, called together a council of all the major bishops and leaders in the church to hash it out so that his his empire would not be uh, rent asunder by bickering Christians. Now, the idea of bickering Christians may seem strange to you. But I have just returned from Jerusalem, and one of the things that always floors me is what goes on around the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, here is a church that is built over the site of the place where it's pretty close to where Christ was crucified and where Christ was buried. It's the traditional site, and I think that the arguments are more in favor of this site. It may not be the exact precise site, but it's probably within 50 or 75 yards at the most of where the crucifixion and the resurrection took place. And part of the church is controlled by the uh, Arminian Patriarchate, not Arminian, but Armenian. Uh, Part of it is controlled by the Uh, Roman Catholics. Part of it is controlled by the Greek Orthodox. And then there's a few other groups, the Coptics and the Assyrian Christians and a couple of others that all have their little tiny cupboard or closet here or there. Um, 
and they're all very jealous. They used to break out in huge fights quite frequently back in uh, earlier times. Um, in fact, they did the same thing down at the church of the, uh, uh, what is it, the church where Jesus was born, the church of the, uh, not the Assumption, but the, um, what? Test question. I can't hear you. Nativity. Nativity. Very good. <laughs> you mumble. The Church of the Nativity. Now, there's a um, uh, there's a war in the 1850s called the Crimean War. I believe it was 1850s. Now, how many people know anything about the Crimean War? How many people know where it started? Where did it start, Catherine? No. No, 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 I'll cut you off. It started in a territorial dispute between a Russian Orthodox priest and a Roman Catholic priest in the Church of the Nativity because they were having a territorial dispute and because the Russian Orthodox priest was the one who initiated, it was extrapolated that this was a sign of Russian belligerency and Russian territorial aggression. Very few people know that. Just one of those minutia things in history. But I got that from Kathy Yeamans, who is the font of minutia in history. She straightens me out many times. So... The Church of the Holy Sepulchre, though, they had these huge fights, and they still go on. Finally, what happened was somewhere in the 1840s, they reached a detente, and they signed an agreement that is an agreement that is still in effect, that everybody has their territory, and it is clearly defined. And every now and then, what happens is, like an incident that about happened about three or four years ago, a priest, I don't remember which kind he was, but it was a hot day in Jerusalem, and he's got his chair leaning back against a wall, and he's in the shade. Well, we all know that shade moves as the sun moves, and all of a sudden, he was in the sun. So he got up moved his chair over a couple of feet to be back in the shade. And immediately, he was accosted and assaulted, and just a crud was beat out of him because he had gone from his territory to, and encroached upon somebody else's territory. And sadly, every year at certain, certain events that take place at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the IDF is called out in mass in order to keep the Christians in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre from killing each other. Isn't that a great testimony? So um, I forget what all that digression was about. I'm taking some cough medicine, and my head's a little bleary. So anyhow, what, Arius? Arius is the uh, heretic who's teaching that there was a time when Christ was not. And so there were these fights all over the empire. And so they called together this council, the Council of Nicaea that occurred in 325, and they came out of that, and they wrote the Nicene Creed, which clearly states that Jesus was very God of very God, true God of true God, 
and it affirmed that. But that didn't settle it. It's battled for another 50 years through a couple of more councils, and finally, uh, finally it is affirmed, and that's the way it's been since, uh, since the 4th century. So we have to uh, understand that there are these, these fights and these divisions, but they ought not, ought not be so. But that was over the deity of Christ. So Christ is eternally God. And Athanasius recognized that one of his key arguments was that Athanasius, uh, I mean, that, that God, Jesus had to be fully God or his sacrifice would not have infinite value. So he has to be fully God, but he also has to be fully man, or he couldn't substitute for mankind. We think of that. We hear this all the time. We talk about the hypostatic union, but we don't understand that much blood was shed to come to those conclusions and to work out that doctrine in the early early church. So Jesus, as the Messiah, had to be both fully God as well as fully man. But this is prefigured in the Scripture. For example, we have the title Son of David. Son of David is uh, indicated in the Davidic Covenant, 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16, as well as in the echo of the Davidic Covenant in Psalm 89, 20 to 37. God promised that David would have a son who would live forever. This is part of an unconditional covenant, so it must be fulfilled. So he has to, the descendant, the one who fulfills that, has to be one who can live forever. At the first coming, Jesus is referred to as the Son of David. As we've studied in Matthew, we've gone through many different times in Matthew where Matthew uses that title to refer to Jesus, pointing out that he is the physical descendant of David. That means he has to be true humanity. So if you go to the Old Testament, if you're talking to somebody, for example, who doesn't think the Messiah is going to be uh, uh, anything but God, you can show that, see, Son of David indicates that he's going to be human. You can look at other, t- other things to refer to his, uh, his deity. So when Jesus Christ comes back at the second coming, he will fulfill that promise to David and take up his throne in Jerusalem. He is our high priest today. We know this from several passages in Scripture. This is the foundation for our being a kingdom of priests, 1 Peter 2.9, that he is seated now at the right hand of God the Father in his humanity. As our high priest, he has to be fully human. This is part of that doctrine of the kinsman redeemer. The Messiah had to enter in to human history. So a priest, by definition, is a member of the human race who stands as an intercessor between human beings and God. His ministry is Godward, representing human beings, whereas a prophet represents God toward man and is manward. He is... Third, he is our Savior, and in order to provide redemption for the sins of the world, he had to be fully human, like had to be, um, had to stand in the place of like. So he could, an angel could not have done it, some other creature could not have done it, a lamb certainly couldn't do it, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. So, and then fourth, in the Old Testament, I mean, in the, uh, at the first advent, it was clearly recognized that he was not only the son of God, but he was the son of David. 
and the apostles, when they preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, always brought up this question of how Jesus Christ could be the son of David and at the same time God. And they always went to the fact that he's the God-man. And so this goes is grounded in this kinsman-redeemer doctrine of the Old Testament. Now, when we get into the New Testament, uh, looking at redemption in the New Testament, we recognize that there are several words that are used. Now, I've gone through these before, and I know it's maybe tedious to some to just go through this grocery list. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because the key idea in all of these is the payment of a price. We have one group that is built off of the root uh, that we see on the screen, L-U-T-R. That's the root. It's uh, part of many different compounds. Anti-lutron is one. The anti, the preposition at the beginning of each of these words adds a different nuance. So anti is the idea of a substitute. So this is the idea of a substitute payment. Uh, you have the word apolutrosis. This is uh, releasing a slave for the payment of a ransom. He is uh, released from something. That's the word apa. So you have the same root, but it's the payment of a price. Then we have a noun form, lutron. This also is refers to the payment of a price, but the purpose is to set someone free, to loose them from some kind of a bond. Then the verb form is lutrao. See, through all these words, you have this same semantic root, L-U-T-R. And it all relates in some way to the payment of a, of a price, to liberate someone. Lutrosis, it means redemption or deliverance or freedom. Again, a noun built on the same root, as is lutrotes, which is a name or title, the redeemer or the deliverer. It's used to refer to Moses in Acts 7.35. Now, the next set of words is built on a slightly different root. It's built on the root agora, uh, the word for the marketplace. And so we have the verb agorazo, which means to buy something in the marketplace. And agora was also used to refer to the slave market. And so we understand that Christ is dying to purchase something from the market, to purchase someone from the marketplace. When you add the preposition ek, it becomes ex agorazo, and this has the idea of purchasing something out from the slave market to completely and totally liberate a slave from the slave market. And it's used two times to emphasize the completed payment, that this has been accomplished. Okay, so we've been set free. A couple of passages where these words are used. Hebrews. Uh, chapter 9, 14 through 15, the writer of Hebrews asks the question, <clears throat> How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, that is, deliverance to cleanse your conscience, to redeem you, to serve the living God, for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption, that is, apolutrosis, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. So the penalty is paid at the cross, 
It's not paid when you believed. It was a real transaction, a judicial transaction that occurred at the cross. That's very important to understand because in church history there's been this argument between those who believe that Christ died for all or Christ died only for the elect. And the issue in redemption is that he pays the penalty for sin for all mankind and that this sets the prisoner free. The issue is are you going to stay free and act like a slave or are you going to leave the slave market? That is the analogy to trusting in Christ for salvation. In 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6, which I've talked about almost every lesson, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Again, emphasizing his humanity. He could only be a mediator if he was truly and fully human. But no one who is true, only true humanity could mediate between God and man. A mediator has to come with something from both parties. He's trusted by both parties. And so Jesus had to be both the God, both God and man. He is uh, a God and a mediator between God and man. One of the great passages emphasizing the deity of Christ, who gave himself, Notice, someone else doesn't give him. He goes as a willing sacrifice to die on your behalf and on my behalf, on the behalf of every human being. Gave himself a ransom for the elect. Is that what it says? No. It says for all. For all. In fact, as I was reading today, I ran across a tremendous quote from John Calvin where Calvin said that Jesus Christ died for all without exception. Now, that changes with Calvin's followers under his uh, successor, Theodore Beza, as they systemized uh, Calvin's teaching. They were influenced by too much philosophy of the time, and Beza decided that, that, that Calvin uh, was wrong there and that if Christ died for the elect, then he could, if Christ came to save the elect, then he would only die for the elect. But we're, it's very clear that he was a ransom for all, and this was Calvin's position. Calvin was not a five-point Calvinist. He might have had a number of other problems, but he did not hold to limited atonement. So what are the <clears throat> implications? What are the results of redemption? Well, first of all, because of redemption, Paul says that we are delivered from the curse of the law. Now, I've often thought it's an odd thing that we translate this word curse, because for most people, curse carries with it sort of the idea of juju black magic. You've got the picture of the witch, the old crony, leaning over the the, the cauldron, stirring something, and she's going to put a spell on somebody. She puts a curse on somebody. That's not the biblical idea of a curse. The biblical idea of a curse is a judgment decree against somebody. God is going to judge someone for something. So we refer to Genesis chapter 3 as the curse on man. Well, God doesn't put the evil eye on man. He announces what the judgment is going to be because man 
disobeyed God and ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you have a judgment announced on the male, you have a judgment announced on the serpent and the animals, and you have a judgment announced on the woman. So Paul says, Christ has redeemed us. He has purchased us out from the curse of the law, because the law put us under judgment. No one could obey the law. By trying to keep the law, Paul says in Romans chapter 7, that that you demonstrate that you are incapable of being righteous, of being tzedakah. No one can perfectly keep the law. So Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, and he became a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So what that is talking about is a person who hangs on a tree, a person who is hung, and, and crucifixion wasn't even known under the Mosaic Law. Uh, it was much, much later. But anyone who was crucified was, wor- was the worst sort of common criminal. You just think about the most horrid, the most rancid, the most evil, wicked uh, criminal you could possibly imagine. And that's the idea. This is a, was a, a punishment that was reserved only for the worst of the worst, the worst rebels against the Roman Empire. And so uh, the Old Testament says that this person is judged because it's such an evil, wicked punishment that person's crime must have been among the very worst. And then Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of the time had come... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So he is born under the law, but he delivers us from the law. Galatians 4.5 goes on to say, as we read on, he's born under the law to redeem, redeem those that were under the law, that we might, if we believe in him, that we might receive the adoption of, as sons. Now, the word for sons here is huios. This is an adult son that has all of the rights and privileges in the Roman Empire of a full heir, that we have those privileges in Christ. We are adopted into God's royal family. Then a second thing, so the first result of redemption is that we're delivered from the curse of the law. Second is that we have the forgiveness for all sin, positionally. We have it judicially because Christ paid the penalty on the cross. We have redemption. Several passages indicate Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.14. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, and that connects a couple of ideas. The idea of forgiveness is the, also has the idea of the forgiveness of a debt, the removal or canceling of a debt. The word redemption as the payment price cancels debt. There was a debt against us, against every human being. Colossians 2, uh, 12 through 14 talks about this, that that certificate of debt, that indictment against us as human beings is nailed to the cross. In A.D. 33, not the day you trusted Christ as Savior, in A.D. 33, it's nailed to the cross so that that indictment is no longer against any human being. 
but they still have two problems. They're born spiritually dead. The penalty, the eternal penalty is removed, but they're born spiritually dead, and they lack righteousness. And if someone never believes in Jesus, that's John 3.18, you're condemned because you have not believed. It's not you've condemned because of what you did. You're condemned because you didn't believe. But faith is the only way to be regenerate, to receive imputed righteousness, to become a new creature in Christ. That's the only way that you can move from spiritual death to spiritual life is to trust in Christ and be regenerate. The only way you can have perfect righteousness is for God to give it to you. So we have a judicial forgiveness, uh, we might say, at the cross that forgives us of all sin, every human being of all sin. The penalty's paid for. It's a real payment. Then we have a uh, real forgiveness that occurs at the point, point of faith in Christ. Every person positionally, we could call it posi- real forgiveness or positional forgiveness, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, and this is echoed in Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. And in both cases, this word uh, afiemi used for forgiveness indicates the eradication of a debt, and redemption is the payment of the price. So the reason the debt's eradicated is because the payment is made. Redemption, then, in Romans 3.24 is the basis for our justification. So if you're breaking all of these things down, the things that were done for us on the cross, then redemption logically precedes justification. Redemption is accomplished on the cross in AD 33. But justification is something that happens to each individual when they believe or trust in Christ as Savior. So Paul says, that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we can only be justified because Christ paid the penalty for sin. And because he paid the penalty for sin, it's a real payment and a real substitution at the cross, then we can be justified freely. Redemption then, under the fourth point, is the basis for our sanctification. Now, there's two big words and two big concepts that are important to understand in the Christian life. One is the word justification. The other is the word sanctification. Now, sanctification means to be set apart to the service of God. It always has that idea of something that is set apart. Justification has to do with being declared righteous. Justification is not progressive. It doesn't take place over time. We don't progressively become more and more justified. That's Roman Catholic theology. The more you partake of the, uh, of the sacraments, the more you confess, the more you do penance, the more you partake of the Mass. Every time you do, you get a few little more brownie points, and eventually, nobody knows when or how much, you have enough to be justified. But Martin Luther... The uh, Augustinian monk who initiated the Protestant Reformation in 1517 said that, that that was completely wrong, that justification was by faith 
alone. And he's responsible for recovering that crucial doctrine that we are justified by faith alone in Christ's work. So redemption is the basis for our, our sanctification in that sanctific- justification is what we saw in the previous point. Because Christ paid the penalty, we can be justified by faith alone. But sanctification is a process. Sanctification is our spiritual growth. We often speak of it as experiential sanctification. And as we grow and mature, we become more and more experientially set apart to the service of God. The basis for experiential sanctification is also in redemption. Experiential sanctification is predicated upon positional sanctification. So this is the analogy for husbands in terms of our responsibilities towards our wives. Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself as a substitute for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. So redemption took place when Christ gave himself for the church, but sanctification takes place through cleansing and washing with the word. That's why we take the time every single class to go through the process of confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. It reminds us that we have to be cleansed continuously because Christ died for us. We have to be cleansed continuously because we sin, and it is done through the Holy Spirit, and then it is, we advance by means of the word of God. This leads to redemption being the basis for our eternal inheritance in in heaven. Uh, Hebrews 9.15, And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption, that is the payment of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called, that is those who believe, may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So redemption, the payment of price, is related to the eternal inheritance. This would be the heirs of God category that all believers have in common, that we have um, throughout all eternity. So redemption, just to review those last three points, redemption is the basis of our justification, that's phase one. Redemption is the basis for our sanctification, that's phase two. And redemption is the basis for our eternal inheritance, and that's phase three. Under point six, redemption is the basis for the strategic victory of Jesus Christ in the angelic conflict. Now remember, strategy is your broad plan. Tactics are your individual plan. How a believer applies the Word of God in many different circumstances every day is part of tactics. How God orchestrated the ultimate defeat of Satan and the payment of the sin penalty is strategy. Redemption's the basis for that strategic victory of Christ, which occurred at the cross. He is um, uh, in the angelic conflict. And I put two passages up there, Colossians two fourteen to 15. And some of you may remember hearing that, that every believer is going to take out a demon 
uh, when Jesus returns. That's not in the passage. But the passage that that came from was Hebrews two fourteen through 15. Just in case you ever wondered, <coughs> and you go back and read it, and you go, scratch your head and say, I don't see it. It's not in the Greek either. So Colossians 2.14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements, that's translated in the King James as the certificate of debt, having wiped out that certificate of debt or the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, it was against us, it's our indictment. He's taken it out of the way when he nailed it to the cross. So that indicates the complete removal of that indictment. Even though we're no longer under indictment, we're still spiritually dead. That's is ha- why we need to believe in Jesus. Just because the certificate is taken out of the way doesn't save us. It doesn't regenerate us, and it doesn't give us perfect righteousness. Point number seven, redemption of the soul in salvation, that is phase one justification, results in redemption of the body in resurrection. Now, this is an important point because there are a few times in Scripture when the object of redemption in terms of any kind of soteriology isn't in terms of what Christ did on the cross, but the application of what Christ did on the cross. So in these passages in Ephesians 1.14 and Ephesians 8.23, we read that the Spirit, that's the subject of Ephesians 1.14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. That is the fi- that's glorification phase three, to the praise of his glory. Romans 8.23 says not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's that guarantee of our inheritance of Ephesians 1.14, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Okay, that's the, really, it's a metaphor there. It's putting the redemption for the effect, for the cause of the redemption. The redemption is the payment of the sin penalty at the cross, but it's applied to our bodies when we are resurrected and receive our uh, resurrection body. Under the eighth point, redemption views salvation from the standpoint of the complete payment of our sins. He didn't pay it in part, he paid it in full. John emphasizes this in his account of the crucifixion. He said, when it was completed, and it's a perfect tense verb in the Greek, which means when it had been completed, Jesus said, it has been completed. Twice you have that rare form of the word tetelestai. When it was completed, Jesus said it's completed. That means nothing more can be paid for. It has the connotation of paid in full. And this is before Jesus died physically. So redemption views salvation from the standpoint of the complete payment. The price is paid for our sins, and the only option left over is to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And that brings us to the ninth point. Since the believer has been bought by Christ, since we have realized that redemption, we now belong to Christ and he is our master. 
We have been bought with a price. We only have two masters in life. You just think you're in control. Not at all. The first master is your sin nature. The second is Christ. We are to take his yoke upon us because it is easy and light. That's what he says to his disciples. Take my yoke upon you. That's the idea. But so often what we find as believers is we want to go back to the yoke of our sin nature. We just want to sin. We think it's pleasure. We think it's light. We think it's fun. We think it's the easier way out. But it's not. It's the deception of the sin nature, thinking that that's what we really want. But we are to live as Christ would have us to live, and that is because he has paid the penalty, so he now owns us. He is our master. We have to learn to recognize that authority, and that's what the spiritual life is all about. Now, I've already talked about First Timothy um, uh, 2.6. No, I didn't. I talked about First, first Timothy uh, earlier, 2, 3, and 4. He gave himself as a ransom for us. Notice the words, antilutron, uh, ransom or substitutionary redemption. That's embedded in this word anti plus the hooper for all. First Timothy 4.10, he says he is the Savior of all men. It's universal. He pays the penalty for all. That does not mean all are saved. But you'll run into people who think that. They're convinced of that. That's what they've been taught. That's what they've always heard. If Jesus really died for everybody, then everybody would be saved. But the Bible never talks about anybody being saved unless they believe. That's the condition for salvation. So that brings us back to a couple of passages we've looked at already. Uh, there are those who are false teachers who deny the master who bought them. See, they've, it's been paid for. It's agorazo. They've been redeemed, but they deny the master who bought them. And also, 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, substitutionary again. It's the uh, Greek preposition peri indicating one in place of another. So that wraps up our understanding of 1 Peter uh, the background for First Peter one eighteen to nineteen that we were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold. It couldn't be purchased. It's not something that any human being could do. And anything that produced from our life is characterized as this futile or empty or meaningless life. Now that's a hard one to get across because a lot of us think that we have things in our life that are meaningful and are significant, and we want to hold on to them. But the classification here is that there's no detail of life that is meaningful in an eternal sense. And nothing that we've done in life has eternal value. It's all temporary. And Peter says to this Jewish background audience, uh, your empty manner of life, which you inherited from your forefathers. See, it was a moral life following all of the dictates of the Mosaic Law according to the standards of the Pharisees. Now, we're going to get into that in a few weeks in in Matthew. In Matthew 23, Jesus will excoriate the Pharisees. He just rips them up one side and down the other because they are leading the people astray. They are the conservative biblicists of their day, And they're the ones who, more than anybody else, should have accepted Jesus as Messiah. 
that's one reason Jesus is so hard on them. They should know better. They're the ones who've memorized the Scripture. They're the ones who valued the Scripture. But they have turned it into something just to generate uh, more uh, power and control for themselves. But we are redeemed with precious blood, the value of his death. Now, the, the idea of the blood of Christ is an important metaphor Throughout Scripture, we have the idea of the shedding of blood as a metaphor or a figure of speech for a violent death. It's not that you haven't shed somebody's blood if they have a heart attack or a stroke. You shed their blood if they are violently killed, and this is what happens on the cross. So the blood of Christ is a metaphor for his death, but it not only refers to his physical death— which is a result of his spiritual death, but it primarily looks on his spiritual death because it is between 12 noon and 3 p.m. that God the Father brought darkness on the earth and he imputed the sins of the world to Jesus Christ before he died physically so that he said it is completed before he dies physically. It's that spiritual death that pays the redemption price. But that's not the end of his work on the cross. Because by dying physically, he's going to go into the grave, and he will be raised from the dead, and that is the foundation for the spiritual life in the church age. That's Romans 6, 1 through 6. We've been identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. He was raised to new life, so we too are raised to new life. So the physical death is important, not for phase one justification, but to set the stage for the resurrection, which is the paradigm for phase two spiritual life. And he is the lamb that is without spot or blemish, which takes us back to understanding the depiction of the Passover lamb that was without spot or blemish. And then it's repeated again, the blood of Christ. That is his death on the cross. So we'll come back next time and we will press forward into 1 Peter. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, reflect on these things, to study through what it means to be redeemed, the value of the death of Christ on the cross, what he went through in order to pay that penalty for each and every human being to be our substitute, that all that would be needed is for us to trust in him. That's grace. We don't do one thing. He did everything. He paid it all. All that is uh, necessary for us is to accept that, to receive it, to make it our own. There's not one thing we can do to make ourselves savable, not one thing that we can do to save ourselves. Jesus paid it all. Father, we'll pray that you'll challenge us, strengthen us spiritually, as we think about these things in Christ's name, amen.